The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. And available Pro Power Onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The lost city of Atlantis. A highly advanced civilization that existed tens of thousands of years ago and then suddenly disappeared into the Atlantic without a trace. Can the cultures and architecture of the Romans, Maya, Incas, Mesopotamians, Greeks, and more all be traced back to a single source? Would discovering this island change our understanding of world history? Do the ruins of Atlantis still exist somewhere out in the ocean's depths? If so, finding them would be the single biggest archaeological discovery of all time. Or are there no ruins to be found? Is the lost city of Atlantis just another myth, an oceanic metropolis invented by the Greek philosopher Plato to teach a moral lesson to ancient Athenians and thanks to a few wackadoodle pseudoscientists, and a lot of fiction presented as fact, a fictitious place explorers still search for to this day. Find out in the wild and crazy ride through thousands of years of history that we have to take to unravel the mystery of today's Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Welcome to the cult of the curious, everybody. Welcome to the suck. An oasis of sarcasm, an irreverent TED Talk of sorts, an example of an attempt at actual truth in this age of spin. It's Time Suck. I'm Dan Cummins, a.k.a. The Master Sucker, a.k.a. Lord of the Suck, a.k.a. Prophet of Nimrod, a.k.a. I didn't come up with any of those, but I love it when you Time Suckers send them my way. Happy Monday, Time Suckers, you beautiful, wonderful seekers of a little knowledge and a lot of fun. I have a very fun suck for you today. And today's Atlanta's Time Suck is brought to you by Mac Weldon the company that makes the best underwear and socks in the men's clothing game. Smart designs crafted with natural fibers, premium fabrics that support as much as they breathe. If Neptune, god of the sea, and mythical founder of Atlantis wore underwear, he'd wear Mack Weldon underwear. And the sea itself would not be able to corrode their godlike comfort. They're my favorite boxer briefs. So snug, but not smothering. It's a delicate balance, and they get it right. So right. They also have a tight sock game, an awesome all-purpose hoodie, Great, versatile t-shirts, so much more. I can't verify this, but I've also heard that many of the products are made by actual wizards and sorcerers because there's no way you can create this stuff without a little bit of magic. 
all this and so many other cool products. And best of all, they're shipped right to your door. Because if you despise shopping as much as I do, uh, and I do, the best store is no store. So treat yourself. Respect those sweet, sweet loins of yours. And go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off. Get 20% off your purchase by using the promo code TIMESUCK. That's 20% off by going to MacWeldon.com and using the promo code TIMESUCK. You deserve it. Thanks for all the iTunes reviews, new subscriptions, and new recommendations to others to listen. So appreciate you guys spreading the suck. Uh, so happy to be dropping the Vlad the Impaler bonus suck. 700 reviews uh, and counting on iTunes, and that's coming out this Friday. Uh, very excited for that. Thanks for also uh, making it to the shop, buying some signed books and CDs, buying some Time Suck t-shirts. All very much appreciated. Had some awesome music sent into the show as well uh, this past week and look forward to including that in a little segment intro and outro soon. It's pretty uh, pretty awesome. And the show has a new logo. If it's not already in your podcast feed, it will be very soon. will be this week for sure. Uh, making the transition right now to a whole new look. Uh, podcast fan and incredible artist and graphic designer Andu Invade is the man who built it. Uh, some of you have seen little pieces of it and posts across Time Suck social media on at Time Suck Podcast on Instagram and Twitter slash pi- uh, Time Suck Podcast on Facebook. The old logo is now the classic logo, forever a part of the show. Uh, that first generation T is still here to stay, uh, rocking the classic logo forever. Uh, Anduin's also working with me on some upcoming merch designs, working uh, on a few Time Suck hats at the moment, getting those uh, designs right, right and tight. Uh, dude is so talented. And he's getting married, so congratulations to Anduin. And because weddings are super expensive, he's having a big sale on his amazing artwork. That's right. So, uh, so get some cool fine art and support a fellow time sucker by going to www.etsy.com. That's right, he has an Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash Vade V A I D. Use the coupon code of She Said Yes. How adorable is that? For twenty percent off at checkout. That's right, time sucker art. Yeah, buddy. The sale lasts through the rest of July, and Anduin will also throw in a free extra mystery sketch for orders over 100 bucks. Links to Anduin's store uh, available at the episode description at timesuckpodcast.com and on Timesuck social media. Also, thanks to Timesucker Bryce Reitman, message board poster Bob Bobson. <laughs> I know it's not your real name. I fucking love Bob Bobson. And anyone who uh, uh, may have also recommended today's suck in the past few hundred or so recent emails and social media messages, I'm hoping to get back to soon. I will as soon as I am able to, I promise. And finally, thanks to Timesucker, Timesuck intern, and member of the Bojangles research team, Rebecca Lilly, a.k.a. the Reba McIntyre of her generation. She kicked ass and putting together a ton of information for me to learn and for me to share. Thank you, Rebecca Reba. And now it's time for some Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. You know, I can never tell exactly what's going to resonate with you, Time Sucker, strong enough to have you write in for any random episode. And I never would have guessed that with last week's Martin Luther King Jr. episode, a Time Sucker update would cause a flood of emails unlike anything that's happened on Time Suck thus far. Turns out this is the summer of the great pussy storm of 2017. Get ready for so much pussy talk, you guys. Just not the kind you're probably used to, if you are in fact used to pussy talk. Last week, I agreed with a Time Sucker that I, uh, you know, thought I could think of a better word than pussy to use when referring to someone who is uh, weak or cowardly. And that it was a, quote, dick way to associate weakness with gender. And then a disturbance in the time suck force was felt that has only been rivaled by me saying genome instead of genome about 50 times in the Designer Babies episode. Wow. First off, uh, there was the irony of telling someone not to associate uh, negative qualities uh, with gender and genitalia by telling them it was a dick way. Uh, which is obviously associating something else negative with gender and genitalia. 
Uh, so mad at myself for not catching that. I, I repeated it and still didn't catch it. I saw your pussy and raised you a dick, and I didn't realize it. This was brought up by Erica Stork, Cam Cash, and Corey D., who titled his e- email, uh, Subject Choking on Irony, and numerous other time suckers, so many. How did I not catch that? I guess I'm just so used to calling someone a dick and having it just mean to me a jerk or arrogant or stubborn person that I don't even think of penis when I say it. I really don't. So there was that. But that was just a small part of the pussy storm. That was just the opening thunder crack, just the initial lightning seen in the distance. Uh, Michael Wojcho and many other time suckers pointed out that the word pussy doesn't have anything to do with female genitalia uh, or gender in its origins. Michael points out that pussy historically is a slang term for pusillanimous. Defined, uh, what a great Scrabble word that would be. <laughs> defined as showing a lack of courage or determination uh, to be timid. According to Merriam-Webster, the Latin roots of this derisive adjective are pusillus, meaning very small, and related to pusus, meaning boy, and animus, which means spirit. So like a very small spirit. Pusillanimus uh, first appeared in English in Britain in the 16th century, but it didn't gain prominence in America until the 1970s when Vice President Spiro Agnew uh, accused his ideological rivals of pusillanimous, sorry, pusillanimous pussyfooting. And then Michael goes on to point out that uh, the use of the word pussy in a sexual manner comes from the hairy softness of a cat being similar to the softness of early 1900s uh, woman's pubic hair, uh, left natural and ungroomed. Words and their weird origins, huh? And a lot of other time suckers echoed Michael's thoughts, and there was a general sentiment of don't tell me what I can't say, slash don't looking to, to be offended, you know, slash, Dan, stand your ground regarding free speech and saying what you want to say, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I see everyone's points. I really do. But let's look at this in a different way. Is the origin of pussy pusillanimous? Yes. Now we all know that. However, is a current slang definition of pussy a woman's vagina? Also, yes. And do we still live in the 16th century uh, or still live in 16th century Britain? No, we don't. We don't even live in an English professor's study lounge. We live in the real world. And the definitions and connotations of words change and evolve over time in the real world. If some 18th century British aristocrat who goes by uh, Nathaniel called you a pussy, uh, I think I said aristocrat, but I meant aristocrat. I don't want to fucking get called out for that. Uh, goes by Nathaniel calls you a pussy at a fancy steakhouse in London in 1747. I'm guessing he wouldn't be making any association with a woman or a vagina, and no present company would assume he had made an association with a woman or vagina. But in 2017, if some dude who goes by Big Todd calls you a pussy at an Outback Steakhouse in Barbersville, West Virginia, he probably means vagina and women in general. Let's be fucking honest. And his present company knows what he means. Big Todd's also a guy who probably also is uh, very fond of phrases like fuck that pussy and bros before hosts. So I guess what I'm saying is we're all right, and in a way, we're all wrong which I'm sure is infuriating, and I promise is not, be, uh, is, me, uh, is not me just being diplomatic. It's the truth. Those of you who know the word's origins and truly don't associate it with gender, say it as much as you want. You're not going to offend me. You're technically correct in its usage. I'm all for being able to say pussy. I'm on your side as a comic. I'm a huge supporter of freedom of speech, but that's not the only definition of the word, and you have to know you're going to offend a lot of other people when you say it. And just like you're not wrong, they're not wrong either. Other people do have the right to be offended by that word, just like you have the right to be uh, inadvertently offensive, all right? Because pussy is not some inherently inoffensive word. It's not like tractor or something, you know? It's not, it's not refrigerator, uh, you know? It, it's, it's a word that does have a negative association with women. That, that's one definition of it. So that's, again, let's not kid ourselves. And to use an even more offensive example to drive home the point I'm trying to make, uh, the point that a word can have an original inoffensive meaning but can then evolve to have a, uh, an offensive meeting. Let's talk about the word retard. 
This word goes back to the 13th century Latin retarder, make slow, delay, keep back, hinder. Also comes from the 15th century French, make slow or slower, from the French retarder. Restrain, hold someone back, keep someone from doing something, come to a stop. The noun is recorded from 1788 in the sense of retardation, delay, right? A delay. It didn't show up in America as being used to describe someone who is developmentally delayed or impaired or someone characterized by a slowness or limitation in intellectual understanding and awareness, emotional development, academic progress, etc., etc., until around 1970. So you could make an academic argument that when you tell your friend you're so retarded on a hiking trip, you could just mean don't be someone who keeps slowing us down, who keeps hindering our progress. And if you said it in 1790, no one would give a shit. But we don't live in 1790. And if you said it tomorrow, and if right after saying it, you came across a mentally handicapped person asking his parents why the world is so cruel, and then those parents are glaring at you, clearly haven't heard you, I hope you feel like a dick. For stubbornly refusing to use a less offensive word. Or, I hope you feel like a pussy by not taking the time to find a better word. Now, all that being said, I'm still going to say dick in certain situations. If someone is being unnecessarily rude or aggressive to me, they're being dick. I like that word. I fucking love that word. One syllable, hard consonant sound at the end, just like, fuck dick. Fuck dick. Great words for comedy. <laughs> and I will still uh, try to, to not say pussy going forward, at least outside of the bedroom, where, uh, where I will say it, because it can be super fucking sexy for real. Uh, if you got the right partner, uh, and, and that's just my personal preference. All right. Same pussy. I'm not going to keep saying it cause it makes me feel like a bully. That's just me. It makes me feel like a big kid picking on a small kid for being small. I don't like the power imbalance. It reminds me of, it does feel to me like I'm associating physical weakness with women when I say it. And that to me is rude because well, frankly, it's true. And the truth often hurts. Bear with me on this. Uh, George Bernard Shaw once said, if you want to tell people the truth, make them laugh. Otherwise, they'll kill you. And as a comic who's told some fairly inappropriate bits over the years, holy fuck is that true. And here's a truth that can cost me some listeners, but I need to say it because if we can't be honest on the suck, then fuck this whole thing. Women are physically weaker than men on average. All right? And I understand how it's probably not fun to be reminded of that. And if you're a woman getting mad right now, hear me out. Don't kill the messenger. Don't shut this off. Let me explain this physical weakness claim and how it pertains to the word pussy and its usage. Women, on average, are 100% equal to men. But just like women are better at some things than average, like pain tolerance, men are better at others. We are equal overall. We are not the same. To believe we are the same is some fucking PC, silly nonsense that spits in the face of logic and reason. Regarding pain tolerance, Discovery Mythbusters, uh, Discovery's Mythbusters tested the long-held belief that women have a higher tolerance for pain than their male counterparts by having members of both sexes submerge their hands in icy water. Women were able to endure the agony on average for a longer amount of time because women are fucking tough, right? They, they, uh, they shoot babies out of their fucking vaginas. I can't even imagine that. <laughs> that sounds like fucking hell. That sounds like some Vlad the Impaler torture shit. Uh, my daughter has a much higher to uh, tolerance for physical pain than my son. You know, random example, but, you know, she gets a cut or scrape, she shrugs it off, right? He tends to cry, girl power. But men are better at growing up to be bigger, stronger humans, which is why I also tell my son to take it easy on his sister when they're going back and forth because he's fucking stronger than she is, right? Partly because he's older, partly because he's a dude, all right? And he has more muscle mass. Google female bodybuilder and you might think, but what about her? But then Google male bodybuilder and you'll think, Fuck, never mind, how is that gorilla human? There's a reason men and women don't play together in professional sports and it has nothing to do with sharing locker rooms. Check this shit out. This is science. As of 2016, the most recent data from the CDC, uh, their nas the National Center for Health Statistics Department, puts the average American women's 
weight at 166.2 pounds, while the average male clocks in at 195.5 pounds. Then let's have a look at the National Strength and Conditioning Association approved XRX Nets official bench press standards chart. For a 198-pound man, a very close match for the national average who has no experience benching whatsoever, XRX, I love that, what is it? Uh, places the standard bench press as 135 pounds. That jumps up to 175 for a novice and 215 for an intermediate lifter. At the advanced level, the number is 290 pounds. Meanwhile, the standard for an untrained woman who weighs 165 pounds is a bench of 80 pounds, or 95 for a novice. For an intermediate experienced woman of average height, the standard is 115 pounds, or 145 for an advanced lifter. So according to the best, most recent data in the world, the average bench press for the average man who doesn't work out at all is 135 pounds, while the average bench press for the uh, female counterpart is 80 pounds, or just over 40% less. The bench press has been the most common test for overall upper body strength for decades, and according to all the scientific data, men on average are 40% stronger than women. Can't wait to see what emails I get now. But that's the truth, and I feel compelled to push the agenda of truth to the best of my abilities, even when it's socially undesirable. And I feel this truth relates to today's argument. Why is pussy so offensive to women? Because it's to some, I know not all, but to some, because it's never fun to be degraded, especially when the degradation holds some kernel of truth. I'm extremely forgetful, and I hate it. It runs in my family, and I get really defensive when I'm teased about probably forgetting something because I try so hard to remember, and I just like it really is there is some kind of fucking chemical deficiency in my goddamn brain, right? And I get mad because I can't help it. It's something I can't help. You know, I wasn't born with a good memory, just like women aren't currently born with the ability to ever bench press over a thousand pounds. And truth, again, I'd like to say I like to think that's the main reason we're all here. So let's have some fucking truth, right? Let's let's talk about things in a real, honest, intelligent, and respectful way. That's what I want Time Suck to be, a place where we can agree, disagree, get mad, get the fuck over it, learn a lot along the way. So, again, I won't say pussy because it makes me feel like a bully. If you want to keep saying it, go ahead. At least maybe uh, now you know, if you didn't already, why it's going to piss some people off. So that's all I got on that. Uh, I also fired up some listeners when I uh, took a shot at not accomplishing anything in life because of playing video games all the time. Some of our gamer listeners reminded me that uh, some competitive gamers have become professionals and make a great living playing video games. I am aware of that. Some gamers accomplish a lot in life. Emphasis on some. I love video games. Uh, I have a PS4. Fucking love it. Don't get to play it anymore, uh, but I love it. Uh, I also notice uh, way more people uh, who waste time playing video games and avoiding life's responsibilities, you know, like living at home as sad, grown children, walking to the fucking GameStop uh, the day their favorite title comes out, uh, than I notice or read about people who play hours and hours a day and really have their shit together and turn that into a career. A lot of awesome gamers out there. Also a good reason that the basement-dwelling, life-wasting gamer stereotype exists. You fucking know that's true. So go play your super fun games and calm the fuck down. All right. Now let's end this update with the response I was hoping for when I did the MLK episode. I also got some of these emails and they made me feel great. This is a little excerpt from a touching email I got from Time Sucker Ben. Holy shit, your last name is tough. Uh, Bassi, Bacchi Galapi. B-A-C-C-I-G-A-L-O-P-I. Dear Master Sucker of the Nimrodians, I absolutely love everything you've put out. I absolutely love the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. episode. It reached me on a very deep level. I was raised in a semi-racist household, and my father is still that way. I grew up in southwest Louisiana in the mid-80s to early 2000s, and the culture there was still passive-aggressively racist. I joined the Air Force in 2002 and had a hard time adjusting to a highly blended culture at first. It wasn't until I had an African-American roommate that I truly had my eyes open to racial equality in Dr. King's works. After that, I took a hard stance on equality and looking past the color of someone's skin. 
I love that you did this episode because it really spoke to me. When I was in the military, I would mentor young white males with a similar background as myself that equality needs to be the focal point in establishing any kind of relationship. That is so true. I have a young son, and I'm instilling values in him that it doesn't matter what race, color, creed, or gender you are. Always remember the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I love it, Ben. You're a good man. I, too, grew up in a uh, homophobic and racist culture and had to evolve past a lot of ugly thoughts I used to have to get to the same place you're at. Respect, man. Respect others until they give you reason not to respect them. Don't judge a book by its color or gender or by the fact that the book may want to get busy with a man instead of a woman or vice versa or both. Good people can be hard to find and you'd hate to let one slip out of your life because it didn't look the way you thought they should. It's beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful stuff. Love it, love it, love it. Now, uh, let's get away from all this serious shit for a second and uh, get silly with some Atlantis. Next time, suckers, I needed that. We all did. The Lost Island of Atlantis. The mythical drowned, highly advanced civilization. I can't remember where I first heard about it, uh, but I know it was when I was a kid. Uh, it's been referenced a ton in pop culture. Uh, like in books. It's been in old books like Jules, uh, Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. C.J. Cutcliffe Hines uh, depicted the end of Atlantis in his fantasy, The Lost Continent. The Story of Atlantis, first published in 1899. K.A. Applegate's Everworld series depicts Atlantis as an underwater city in Everworld's oceans. Popular author Clive Cussler talks about it in Atlantis Found. C.S. Lewis, uh, Narnia dude, you know, in uh, his book That Hideous Strength uh, is debated by two of the villains that the character of Merlin may be from Numenor, or it is more commonly known, Atlantis. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, The uh, Sil uh, Silmar Silmarillion, there we go, The Silmarillion includes the history of his adaptation of Atlantis, uh, known as the island of Numenor, where the Numor Numor Numenorians lived. Uh, Numenor was the home of the most advanced civilization uh, of men in the history of Middle-earth, and much like Atlantis, the island of Numenor was swallowed in the sea in a single night. Uh, Aragorn, uh, of the Lord of the Rings, is descended from the survivors of this people. In George R.R. R. Martin's, uh, you know, Game of Thrones, uh, in the world uh, of A Song of Ice and Fire, the Valerian Freehold is widely speculated to be uh, Martin's interpretation of Atlantis. And it shows up in a lot of other books, right? In comics, Atlantis was uh, all over the place in the Marvel, or is all over the place in the Marvel comic book universe. It was an ancient landmass, which was home to a technologically advanced civilization. Also shows up in manga, anime. Uh, in film, it shows up in movies going all the way back to 1936, like the Undersea Kingdom, where Unga Khan seeks to conquer Atlantis in the surface world. Shows up in 1985's Cocoon, where a small group of aliens returns to Earth to find 20 of their species who were left behind when Atlantis was abandoned 10,000 years before. Shows up in 2008's 10,000 BC, in which the godlike race that commands the construction of a pyramid is believed uh, by the slaves to have originated from a civilization that sank into the sea. Right, another, another scene in the uh, film briefly shows a map depicting a large island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Shows up in TV in the sci-fi universal series Stargate Atlantis. Atlantis is a city ship created by the ancients, a race of human-like beings who were much more technologically and evolutionary, uh, ev evolutionarily advanced than we humans are. Atlantis is the setting of the 2013 BBC One fantasy series of the same name. In the animated TV series Justice League, uh, uh, Atlantis is the home of Aquaman. Um, and on and on and on. It shows up in video games, role-playing games, uh, definitely shows up in music. Folk pop singer Donovan scored a top 10 uh, pop hit in 1969 with Atlantis, a song which begins with a narrative of Plato's account of Atlantis. Uh, the 1977 song Voyage of Atlantis by the Isley Brothers. Michael McDonald, uh, Michael motherfucking McDonald, sang about it in his 1986 hit, uh, Headed Back to Atlantis. Uh, you've, you, I'm sure you've heard that one. That Headed Back to Atlantis. 
making love to my mermaid girl. I'm headed back to Atlantis, find that perfect underwater world. I'm headed back to Atlantis, Atlantis. Okay, that song sadly was never featured on any of Triple M's albums or written by Michael McDonald or sung or even thought of by the Grammy winner. But the rest of that stuff was real. So when did the Atlantis story begin? Uh, While many disagree over whether or not Atlantis uh, is real and who supposedly lived there, if it was real and where it was, if it was real, uh, no legitimate historian disagrees as to where we first heard about Atlantis. The Athenian philosopher Plato. And I feel compelled to talk like this sometimes when I'm talking about Plato. Uh, Plato was born in 427 BCE. And, you know, uh, by the way, there's a little update I can throw in right now. Uh, over the last few emails, or sorry, uh, last few episodes, people have let me know that uh, BC is not before Christ. Uh, and AD is not uh, after death. It's like Annos Domini or something. Uh, sorry, I can't remember now as I'm just randomly throwing this in. Uh, because when you do the uh, BC and the AD, it doesn't account for the actual time of Christ's life, which is what, 30-some years or something? So throw the whole thing off. But anyway, BCE is before Common Era. CE is Common Era, if I haven't said that before. So Plato was born in 427 BCE in Athens. Uh, he's often referred to as Greek, and indeed his native language was Greek, and he was born in a part of Europe that is today the country of Greece. But in Plato's time, uh, there was no such country. Instead, it was, uh, you know, on this peninsula and island of today's Greece, there was just a number of city-states, Walled cities, the outlining rural areas and villages that each uh, walled city could defend. City-states that were governed independently of one another, although groups of them would form into alliances uh, variously strong or weak and were governed in vastly different ways. In Plato's day, the greatest of the city-states, if greatness may be defined by a level of learning, art, architecture, music, general quality of life, was Athens. And so Plato was an Athenian. Uh, Athens was one of, if not uh, the most enlightened city Europe had ever seen. It had one of the world's first, perhaps the very first democracy. The term democracy is derived from the Greek uh, uh, demokratia, uh, which was coined from demos, people, and kratos, rule, in the middle of the 5th century BCE to denote the political systems then existing in some Greek city-states, notably Athens. However, it also still didn't count women as citizens. Slavery was common, so it wasn't, you know, uh, enlightened by today's standards in, any, in every way. Uh, boys were educated. Even some male slaves were educated. Girls were not. Uh, most Athenian citizens were literate, uh, but books, which existed at that time as handwritten scrolls, were rare. Uh, guessing, and this is pure speculation, that books were a lot shorter, too. Uh, when you're handwriting that shit, you're not going Dickens and writing some 928-page Bleak House or a 358,000-word David Copperfield. Just fuck you, Charles, you asshole. I'm not handwriting five copies of Great Expectations, you dick. You feel like giving a copy to all three of your aunts, your neighbor, and the guy you like chatting with at the Euro Shack? Well, start dipping your quill and get busy scribbling, motherfucker. Uh, Medical knowledge and sanitation were advanced for the time, but the lifespan of most people was relatively short. Travel was possible, but it was very slow. Navigational instruments were relatively primitive, so that ships were forced to sail close to islands and coastlines. Travelers on land, most of whom went by foot, were in constant danger of attack by robbers. For the mountainous country between walled cities was wild and lawless. Kind of like the wildlings from Game of Thrones. You know, they're just roving around. I doubt any of them were uh, even uh, close to as attractive as that one redhead, though. Rose Leslie. I get it, Jon Snow. I get it. Uh, what a weird world that would be, man. You're just out in the fucking wild. It's like, like instead of just like feral dogs, there were just feral humans just roaming around attacking people. Uh, both Plato's mother and father were uh, members of wealthy and politically powerful families in Athens, which was uh, at the time of Plato's birth embroiled in a political upheaval involving the city-states of Athens and Sparta. Sparta! 
and their allies and their allies. Uh, this political unrest had recently manifested itself uh, in the outbreak of armed hostilities and the commencement of a disastrous civil war, the Peloponnesian War, 431 to 404 BC. Uh, this war shattered the Athenian Empire, practically destroyed the governments of all the Greek city-states, and resulted in anarchy uh, in 404 and 403 BC. Thus, Plato grew to young adulthood surrounded by the strife of civil war, and he witnessed several revolutions in Athens. He saw a government of Democrats, the rule of the many, replaced by an oligarchy, the rule of the chosen few, which was then re again replaced uh, by the Democrats. Plato tells us in a letter he wrote when he was 60 that in his youth he had hoped to become actively involved in politics, chiefly because he thought it was his social responsibility, but also because many of Plato's friends and relatives had invited him to help them to govern the Athenians and to share in the exercise of political power. But young Plato, after seeing the various political factions conducting what seemed to him to be nothing more than self-serving policies motivated by simple greed and an appetite for absolute power over the people, rather than exercising government for the people and their welfare, he was disappointed, shocked by the violence he saw done to the people, and finally disgusted with existing politics in general and chose not to seek political office. Man, almost 2,500 years ago, and everyone was disgusted with politicians. How little things change. And then in 407 BC, Plato meets Socrates, and they fight to the death. There can be only one Highlander. Plato beheads Socrates with one swift swoop of his sword, absorbs his power, and holds the head of Socrates high for the mob that has borne witness to this bloodshed. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? No. That never happened, but that would have been fucking awesome. Uh, Plato begins to study philosophy, taught by Socrates. And then later, during the political unrest of his lifetime, Plato witnessed a series of politically motivated maneuvers and fabrications brought against his old friend and teacher, Socrates. Uh, Plato saw very clearly that the charges brought against Socrates were unjust, and it is plain that Plato feared for the outcome of those charges. Uh, apparently, when Plato was 27 or 28, his friends and relatives who had invited him to join them in governing the Athenians tried to get even with some of their political enemies whom they had overthrown in the latest revolution. They tried, Plato tells us, to enlist the aid of Socrates in helping them to arrest one of their political adversaries and carry him off and execute him. Apparently, the attempt to involve Socrates in this travesty of justice and subsequent murder in the name of the state uh, was, was done in order to lend the, the name of the greatest philosopher uh, of the day as a, as a party to their illegal activity and to force him to share in their guilt, kind of legitimize it. Socrates didn't answer their call to action, and his absence was remarked and noted. Mm, they didn't care for that. It's going to lead to his downfall. Plato was disgusted, and then the uh, corrupt politicians fell out of power, and a new revolution ensued. Plato was tempted once again to involve himself in politics, but then he saw the same system of political paybacks and corruptions practiced by the new leaders of the state, more of the same again. Again, man, he could be living now and being pissed off about the same kind of stuff. Uh, Socrates was approached by the new regime and also, again, refused to work with them. Socrates was a great teacher, but he was never employed as a teacher, never took money for the things he taught, uh, never wrote anything down as far as we know. All we know of him uh, and what he taught was recorded by his students, the young men of Athens, whom he would meet on various street corners in Athens, youngsters like Plato, whom he would gauge in conversations. Socrates was a true philosopher, a lover of learning and truth, a time sucker. He's kind of like a time sucker. Uh, or maybe he didn't know how to write. Maybe that's why he didn't do it. Maybe he was too lazy to write everything down by hand. Maybe he had carpal tunnel and he didn't know about it yet. Maybe, maybe, maybe he had teeny tiny doll hands that were, it made it hard to hold a quill. We don't, we don't know for sure. But apparently, uh, Socrates refused to ally himself for any reason uh, with people whom he felt clearly uh, to be culpable of unjust acts, and Socrates would not cease asking questions of those people. What is your understanding of justice? If you are wise, how do you know you are wise? If you are leader of the state, where precisely are you leading this state? If you are in a position of authority, what are your credentials for having that authority? In short, 
Socrates fucking knew how to piss people off. Uh, no, Socrates, by his own precepts, an example must have encouraged the youth of Athens, including Plato, to question authority uh, wherever that authority might reside in the turbulent Athens of this day. This Again, this is going to lead to his, his death. Usually, uh, pissing off the people in power uh, doesn't bode well for your, for your health and well-being. Uh, Socrates in 399 BCE was brought to trial and charged with not believing in the gods and with corrupting the youth of Athens. Socrates had too many enemies in high places. At a time when the young Plato was still considering becoming a politician, his dear friend and dearest teacher was put to death by politicians. Now, he did, like, you know, drink some poison and he killed himself, but it was uh, forced. The story of Socrates' trial and death is told in Plato's dialogues, The Apology and the Phaedo. So how, Plato wondered, could have justice be achieved for Socrates? Indeed, how might justice be achieved for every citizen of the state? It is this interest in the possibility of achieving justice for every citizen that serves as the major argument in the Republic, an interest which threads through every political dialogue that Plato wrote. Uh, he resolved to become more committed to the study of philosophy, uh, just like a teacher Socrates, because Plato believed that to be a just or that a just and uncorrupted state as a political reality could not be formed until citizens arrived at an understanding of what constitutes justice and the good life as concepts. Plato resolved to dedicate his life to the study of philosophy. After the death of Socrates, Plato left Athens and according to uh, uh, Herm. Herm Odorus, Hermodorus, uh, one of Plato's students, he spent the next few years traveling to Greece, Egypt, and Italy. Again, uh, the letter that Plato wrote when he was 60, the seventh letter, tells us that he went to Italy and Sicily when he was 40, but then gluttony and sexual debauchery uh, that he found there disgusted him. Uh, he did make a new friend there, Dion, the brother-in-law uh, of Dionysius I of uh, Syracuse in Sicily. And then in 387 or 386 BCE, Plato returned to Athens and founded the Academy, which was intended to serve as a school for future leaders of state. And this is going to get us to Atlantis, I promise. Uh, Plato apparently planned the curriculum of the Academy, primarily courses in philosophy, science, and law, to provide for the training of the ideal philosopher rulers he described in the Republic. This is, you know, most well-known work. The Academy was one of the uh, world's first the Academy was probably actually probably was the world's first university, and it rapidly became the intellectual center for Greek life. According to Aristotle, who studied with Plato for almost 20 years, Plato lectured without notes, probably engaging his students in conversations after the fashion of his own mentor, Socrates. And as the fame of the Academy grew, it attracted many brilliant thinkers to join its faculty, and we are told that Plato sent many of those faculty to help various city-states and colonies to form legislative bodies. Man, what a fucking innovator. That's awesome. In, three, uh, in 367 BC, when he was 60 years old, and at the height of his fame, at the head of the Academy, Plato heard from his friend Dion of Syracuse, who invited Plato to come and teach the young Dionysius II, who had recently become king of Syr Syracuse. Plato accepted the invitation because he still retained his old wish to become actively involved in politics, to be a man of action, as well as a mere man of words. But Dion soon got in trouble because of his uh, political intrigues and was banished from the country. So then Plato again returned to Athens, only to return to Syracuse again in 361 BCE to help Dionysius II rule fairly and equitably, uh, put the kingdom under a rule of law, and eschew the temptations of tyranny. Plato failed in this endeavor, and he soon found himself in personal danger. After escaping Syracuse, Plato returned home to Athens. He never again meddled directly in political affairs, although several members of his faculty did actively aid Dion's military expedition against Syracuse in 357 BCE, an expedition that overthrew the tyranny there. By this time, Plato had completed most of the writings for which we remember him, but late in his life, he was still intrigued by the problem of how to accomplish a legislative body that might serve to put into action the ideas and the ideals he had conversed about in such works as the Republic. Aristotle who became a student at the Academy in 367 BCE, tells us that Plato and his students were conversing about the problem of laws, a recorded system for give, governing a given state when Plato died in 348 or 347 BCE. Plato, a philosopher right to the very, very end. How cool is that? 
And how crazy is that, that all these years later, man, we're still fucking trying to work it out. We're still trying to uh, govern justly. Man, this is, this is a problem that'll never go away because power corrupts, right? Absolute power corrupts, absolutely. How do you, how do you give people a lot of power to govern the, the masses and not have them be corrupted? I don't know if that'll ever happen. I really don't. Uh, okay, so all right. So before we get to what Plato said about Atlantis, let's examine how he taught his students in a little more detail. Uh, we're able to really delve into his teachings because due to the academy's safekeeping, many of Plato's works survived antiquity. These writings are in the form of letters and dialogues, the most famous of which is probably, again, the Republic. His writings covered subjects uh, ranging from general knowledge to happiness to politics to nature. A lot of Plato's teachings centered on distinguishing between objects that one can see and touch, and this is important to Atlantis, uh, universal and universal ideals, the truest form of the object as the ultimate and original thing. To illustrate that difference, think about what a cat is. Right? The idea of a cat is a general concept. It is a definition. And according to Plato, this definition is timeless and immutable. You can't see or touch a definition. It is independently existing. Uh, it is the ultimate thing. It is the ultimate idea of a cat. It is cat Zeus. It is cat Jesus. It is the perfect cat. The universal idea of a cat. It is ideally and gloriously 100% cat. As opposed to a regular old mangy tomcat that you can see on the street with notches on its ears, shiftiness in his eyes, smells like a can of tuna mixed with a litter box left out in the sun, got a crook in his tail. That's a sensible object, something that is right in front of you, something you can see and touch. The street cat is a representation of the ideal cat, but it is not a cat in its truest, most perfect form. All right. So teaching about the ideal form of a thing compared to the actual version of it is, is again, going to lead us to Atlantis, I promise, because that's where the big debate is. Was he talking about a real thing or was he talking about an ideal thing when he mentions Atlantis? And to teach his philosophy, Plato had created many dialogues over the years. Uh, Timius and Critias are two of Plato's dialogues and are the only written records which specifically refer to Atlantis written sometime around 360 BCE. Plato's dialogues in their simplest form can be compared to like a screenplay or a movie script. Essentially, Plato makes up conversations between individuals which helped convey his ideas. His dialogues were imaginary conversations between the characters Socrates, uh, Hermocrates, Timius, and Critias. And in one of these dialogues, apparently in response to a prior talk by Socrates about ideal societies, Timius and Critias agreed to entertain Socrates with a tale that they do say is not a fiction but a true story. And again, this is kind of like uh, what, what, what created the whole... Uh, mythology of Atlantis. Was it really a true story? Or would he just say that in this narrative to like captivate his audience? And the story is about a conflict between the ancient Athenians and the Atlanteans 9,000 years before Plato's time. Knowledge of the distant past apparently forgotten by the Athenians of Plato's day. The character Critias mainly tells this story. In this dialogue, Critias intends to indulge Socrates with a story about the difference between gods and men, arguing that it is easier to speak well of the gods than it is to speak well of ordinary men. This is because to Critias, a.k.a. Plato, remember it's Plato sharing his thoughts through characters, humans who try to seem impressive uh, will usually try to impress ignorant people who know nothing about what they're being impressed by. This is unlike the gods who know everything, so they're not going to be impressed by your little fucking piddly accomplishments. Like, uh, like you could have some pompous painter, painter paint the mountains. He's the best human painter that ever lived. And to someone who is not, you know, an artist uh, – or to someone, you know, who is not a god, rather, you know, that's going to look amazing. But to a god who literally created the mountains out of nothing, your mountains look like great piles of shit. Well, the tale of Atlantis uh, might, uh, and, and tell of, well, the tale of Atlantis's might and ultimate destruction by the gods was thought of as a warning 
to the people of Athens. Don't believe your own hype. Don't get arrogant because of your prosperity and think you're the greatest thing to ever happen to Earth. To the gods, you're still nothing. So be fucking humble. And in Plato's tale, the people of Atlantis were a little full of themselves and their abilities, but then the gods were not impressed and then the gods destroyed them. So again, stay humble, my friend. Stay humble. That's what most historians uh, think is, is, is the message of Atlantis, basically. So now, this is a Plato's story of Atlantis, you know, summarized as told by Critias. He sets a story about 9,000 years ago, and Critias begins to describe a war between which he describes as to have taken place between those who dwelt outside the pillars of Hercules and all who dwelt within them. Of the combatants on the one side, the city of Athens, and those they commanded. And the combatants on the other side were commanded by the kings of Atlantis. So first, Athens is described. In Athens, you have land ownership in Greek mythology. Athena and uh, Hephaestus originally possessed Athens, these gods. And basically, the gods just chose areas to obtain uh, and didn't argue with each other about who you know, got what little city-state. And it is said that they tended uh, to the people of this land. They governed them, holding their souls by the rudder of persuasion according to their own pleasure. Thus did they guide all mortal creatures. And Hephaestus, Greek god of blacksmiths, craftsmen, artisans, sculptors, metals, metallurgy, fire, and volcanoes. Athena, goddess of wisdom, craft, and war, both governed this land together because they were siblings and shared love and philosophy and art, which later changed into wisdom and virtue. In the beginning uh, of Athens, they created brave humans who understood government and tradition. Athens was inhabited in those days by various classes of citizens. There were artisans, there were husbandmen, farmers, and there were also a warrior class originally set apart by divine men. These divine men dwelt by themselves and had all things suitable for nurture and education. They had nothing of their own. They regarded all that they had as common property, nor did they claim to receive anything from the citizens more than their necessary food. These bros are Plato's favorites. Thinker had a platonic Plato boner for the warriors of Athens. There was uh, land types discussed. The land was the best in the world in Athens and was therefore able to, in those days, support a vast army raised from the surrounding people. They had a ton of animals and produce for their food. The mountains of Athens were high hills covered with fertile soil, and the plains were full of rich earth, and there was abundance of wood in the mountains. And who so lovingly cultivated this land? Well, the husbandmen. Critias described them as lovers of honor and of a noble nature. And they husbanded the shit out of Athenian soil. They husbanded the animals. Husbanded them so hard. Centaurs were born. That's right. Those great husbandmen husbanded their seed so deeply into horse vagina that a race of half-horse, half-men was formed. No, this particular sale has nothing to do with centaurs, I'm afraid. And then there were the warriors. The warrior class dwelt by themselves around the temples of Athena and Hephaestus. The structure was enclosed with a single fence, like the garden of a single house. They all lived in very simple homes, all looked the same, were not lavishly decorated. The warriors at this time had no need for riches. This is how they dwelt, being the guardians of their own citizens and the leaders of Hellenes, who were their willing followers. And they took care to preserve the same number of men and women through all time, being so many as were required for warlike purposes. And then as now, that is to say about 20,000. Plato didn't really get into exactly how they kept that number at 20,000. I guess a big detour into a forced abortion would have distracted from his main narrative. And if extra babies were born that would increase the number beyond 20,000, the warriors used those extra babies for archery practice and gave their redundant corpses to the husbandmen for fertilizer for the soil. Be a dark turn. Overall, the Athenians were renowned all over Europe and Asia uh, for their beautiful people and their darn good virtuous personalities. And then, uh, after Critias uh, finishes describing Athens, he, he goes on to describe Atlantis. So here we go. Uh, so just like Athena and Hephaestus guided Athens, Poseidon, god of the sea, watched over and assisted Atlantis. 
The island itself, just like Athens, was extremely fertile, and it was surrounded by the sea. Atlantis begins with a small mountain in the island. On this mountain dwelled an earthborn man named Evanor with his wife Lucip. They birthed only one daughter named Clato. When the beautiful Clato reached womanhood, her parents had uh, been long dead, and Poseidon fell in love with her, and they had sex, you guys. Hot, steamy water god sex. Romance novel shit. You don't two-pump chump it when you're the god of the sea. She's lucky to have survived the encounter. Right, lucky her body wasn't torn into a million pieces from Poseidon's powerful waves of semen crashing against her human labia. The sex was so good an island was formed. That's how you know you have good sex. When you're done, there's a new landmass. When you can come a new landmass into existence, that's how you know you're a god. Poseidon makes it uh, so that no man could get uh, to the island. In the center of the island, he creates two water springs, uh, one with hot water, one with cold, how convenient, in the days before gas and electric heaters, uh, as well as a variety of food that sprung up from the soil. He then proceeded to have sex with Clato many more times. They loved to do it. And they produced five pairs of male twins. Why Plato felt the need to add this part to the story is lost to history. Maybe he was just, you know, really into twins and even numbers of offspring. Because there would be ten kids, in case you're thinking, well, that's five's an odd number. Poseidon then divided up the island into ten portions to give to his children. His firstborn was given uh, his mother's dwelling in the surrounding land. This was the largest and best plot of land, which made him king over everyone else. The oldest is the king. The rest of the sons become princes, uh, who also had large territories to rule and many people to rule over. It was a big fucking island, okay? The eldest son, the first king, was named Atlas, and he invented maps, and he sold them with Rand McNally, another god. No, that's just a weird uh, map reference. The eldest god was named Atlas. Uh, the island Atlantis itself and the surrounding ocean, the Atlantic, were named after him. That's pretty fucking cool history. Atlantic comes from Atlas. The second youngest, um, Gadurus, Gadurus, there we go, Atlas's twin, obtained an island. Oh, man, he just missed it. He missed being Atlas by a couple minutes, and he ended up being Gadurus. There's nothing, nothing named after him. Uh, Alice the twin obtained an island known in the region of Gades and had the island language be named after him. The next eldest pair of twins were called Amphirus and Evamon, two names pronunciation videos don't exist for. To the third pair of twins, he gave the name of Menesius. Who knows if that's the fucking correct pronunciation because they're all a bunch of stupid old Greek names. And then there was Autocathon, which is spelled like he's a fucking transformer. And Autoglathon would soon give birth to Optimus Prime. Yes, the Transformers are from Atlantis. Bumblebee, Ratchet, Ironhide, all grandsons of Poseidon. No, but why not? Why not have the Transformers show up with this weird fucking convoluted tale? And then there was other assholes with other asshole names only their fucking families cared about or could pronounce. And then all these sons and their descendants for many generations were the inhabitants and rulers of the diverse islands in the open sea of Atlantis, even holding sway over the country within the pillars as far as Egypt and Tyrrhenia. There was the land structure and wealth of Atlantis was described by Plato. The eldest son had a very large and noble family. The crown was passed down to each eldest son for many generations. They were extremely loaded, more loaded than any king that had ever existed before. They had everything they needed to run the city and the country and more. Like if yachts had existed, they would have had those. More than those. They would have had so much money, they would have had giant fucking yachts so big that they would have a man-made lake on the main yacht deck. And inside of that lake, floating on its surface, would be yet another yacht. Where they would play yacht rock all the time. Uh, they had an abundance of resources, such as precious minerals, wood, even animals. Uh, again, for an island, this place had a fuck ton of elephants for some reason. Uh, they had plentiful fruits and herbs that they used uh, for, for food and medicine. This place just overflowed with goods. 
First, uh, they, they bridged over. They had bridges going over the zones of the sea because there was like little rings expanding out from the main uh, center island, and uh, you know, like there's like a road between the royal, royal palaces. They built a harbor for ships, a canal 300 feet wide and 50 stadium in length. All this, including the zones and bridges, surrounded by a stone wall on every side, towers and gates and shit. The entire circuit of the wall, which went around the outermost zone, they covered with a coating of brass. Why not? Make it look nice and pretty. In the circuit of the next wall, they coated with tin. And the third, which encompassed the citadel, flashed with red, the red light of orichalcum. Orichalcum, an ancient mix of copper and zinc with small traces of nickel and iron. Fancy fucking island stuff, you guys. In the center of the palace, uh, in, the, in, the, in the middle island, there was a holy temple dedicated to Clato at, and Poseidon which remained inaccessible and was surrounded by an enclosure of gold. Of course it was. And this temple, the ten sons, would tither the people, which means that the people of the land would bring them offerings of their crop from the current season. Poseidon's own temple, which was a stadium in length, 600 feet, half a stadium in width, 300 feet, and a proportionate height, had a strange barbaric appearance. All uh, the outside of the temples, with the exception of the pinnacles, they covered with silver, and the pinnacles with gold, silver and gold, silver and gold. On the interior of the temple, the roof was of, uh, made of ivory. I guess from all those fucking elephants, they had a lot of ivory. And it goes on and on and on. They had a lot of fancy shit, right? They had, they had temples full of statues with, you know, the gods were all made out of gold. All the descendants of the, the ten kings of the land had statues. It, they had uh, fucking temples, to even to, to all kinds of stuff. Even like horse racing, they had a horse racing temple. Why not, right? Have a horse racing temple in Atlantis. Just fucking go, go nuts. And again, so so many details. He talks about so many details. Uh, Critias, when he's telling the story of Atlantis, talks about like, you know, curses and stuff, you know, that they could put curses on people at their temples. And he talks about their laws. There's many special laws affecting the several kings inscribed about the temples. But the most important was the following. Uh, they were not to take up arms against one another. They were, they were all to, uh, and they were all to come to the rescue if any one of any of their cities attempted to overthrow the royal house. Like their ancestors, they were deliberate in common about war and other matters giving to the supremacy of the descendants of Atlas. And the king was not to have the power of life and death over any of his kinsmen unless he had the consent of the majority of the ten. Ten smart dudes who helped the king rule Atlantis. Right? And again, so many fucking details. Like they get into the minutia of, of Atlantis life. Uh, apparently, uh, you know, Plato, when he's, when he's giving this speech, he had a lot of fucking time to kill. You know, he's, he realized he shouldn't have signed up, you know, his students for a six-hour course on Atlantis. Maybe he should have made it like one hour. But for many generations, uh, uh, this, this Atlantis apparently goes on like this. People are obedient to the laws. The descendants of Atlas, they fucking run shit. Uh, they're, they're, you know, good to the gods. They pay their tributes. They're very honest people, uh, you know, possess a lot of wisdom. They live virtuous lives. All of that's going great. But then, then finally... After a long period of time, after, you know, the, uh, the descendants have, have gone way, way down the descendant line and the portion of the population began to fade away that was really uh, closely related to the gods and they became deluded too much with the mortal side of man, the human nature got the upper hand. They could no, no longer ignore their vast fortunes and they started to behave unseemly. They started to become greedy, lovers of luxury and power. And it pissed Zeus off. He was like, mm-mm, fuck that. That's a direct quote. From uh, Plato's research, he's like, and then Zeus said, fuck that. And it echoed off of the pillars of Atlantis. <laughs> but no, Zeus, then the god of gods who rules according to law. Uh, and Zeus didn't like how cocky they were being, and so he punished him. And according to Critias, 9,000 years before his lifetime, a war took place between those outside the pillars of Hercules at the Strait of Gibraltar and those who dwelt within them. The Athenians versus the, versus the Atlanteans. 
And because, you know, uh, the Lanans were gotten real cocky and weren't, you know, cool to the gods anymore, Zeus favored the Athenians, who were not as cocky, and they were more respectful, right, less bro-y, right? And, uh, and the Atlanteans, um, though, you know, there was a huge battle, and even though Zeus favored the Atlanteans, uh, the Atlanteans still nearly won in this story because they did have the greatest single warrior the world had ever seen. They had Bojangles. Bojangles was the one immortal non-human Poseidon produced, mating with the beautiful local pit bull bitch when Clato could no more take his god seed, and yet he was still horny in the early moments of Atlantis' formation. Bojangles was made immortal. He took the mortal form of a pit bull and possessed the abilities of a mortal god, and he was Atlantis' finest warrior. He could cut through the ranks of a hundred enemy men with his ease, slapping them with his four powerful paws, staring them down with his two steely eyes. He was adored by female dogs and human women alike, and he had a harem of each living with him on Atlantis at all times. And he had never been wounded in battle once, hundreds of years of fighting, but not a single scratch until the day he battled Zeus himself in the final battle of Atlantis. And Zeus struck Bojangles with two powerful thunderbolts, one right after the other. The first hit Bojangles as Bojangles nearly killed the god of gods with a powerful bite. One thunderbolt, a weapon that would normally wipe an entire village off the map forever, took out one of Bojangles' precious eyes, and the other removed one of his precious legs, and also strangely saved his life when it blasted him onto the land of Europe, far away from Zeus's sight, saving him from the violent earthquakes and floods that then sank Atlantis into the sea. So that's the basic summary of what Plato said about Atlantis. Except the Bojangles stuff, that was me. That was me. But in this great battle... Zeus did side with the Athenians, and he sank Atlantis into the sea. So now, so that's the basic story. It's super fucking weird uh, and long, and parts of it are really boring. Uh, <laughs> but now, uh, the big question is, was he being serious on any level, and I mean by him, by he, I mean Plato, in Atlantis existing? Or was it just a parable? Was this all just a fictional story used to illustrate a moral lesson? Most author- historians, and by most, I mean all legitimate historians, think it was just a story. Uh, it's a story that captures the imagination, says James Rom, professor of classics at Bard College in Annandale, New York. It's a great myth. It has a lot of elements that people love to fantasize about. There are many theories about where Atlantis was, in the Mediterranean, off the coast of Spain, even under uh, what is now Antarctica. Pick a spot on the map and someone has said Atlantis was there, says Charles Orzer, curator of history at the New York State Museum in Albany. Every place you can imagine. Plato said Atlantis existed about 9,000 years before his own time, and that its story had been passed down by poets, priests, and others. But Plato's writings about Atlantis are the only known records of its existence. Why, why didn't it pop up before in anything? A few, if any, scientists think Atlantis actually existed. Ocean explorer Robert Ballard, the National Geographic explorer-in-residence, who discovered the wreck of the Titanic in 1985, pretty accomplished dude, notes that no Nobel laureates have ever said that what Plato wrote about Atlantis was true. Look at Ballard going full nerd fight with that little barb, saying basically that only idiots have a search, have a search for a real Atlantis. I fucking love it. Still, Ballard says the legend of Atlantis is a logical one since catas- cataclysmic floods and volcanic explosions have happened throughout history, including one event that had some similarities to the story of the destruction of Atlantis. About 3,600 years ago, a massive volcanic eruption devastated the island of Santorini in the Aegean Sea near Greece. At the time, a highly advanced, for their day, society of Minoans lived on Santorini. The Minoan civilization disappeared suddenly at about the same time as that volcanic eruption. But Ballard doesn't think Santorini was Atlantis, because the time of the eruption on the island doesn't coincide with when one 
uh, with when Plato said Atlantis was destroyed. Rom believes Plato created the story of Atlantis to convey some of his philosophical theories, like I was saying earlier. Uh, he was dealing with a number of issues, says Rom, themes that run throughout his work. His ideas about divine versus human nature, ideal societies, the gradual corruption of human society, these ideas are all found in many of his works. Atlantis was a different vehicle to expand on some of these themes. All right, that he, he put it much better than I put it earlier when trying to describe uh, what, what Atlantis, what the message was supposed to be. But if Atlantis was real, where would it be? All right, okay, so no respectable member of academia actually believes that Atlantis was a real place, but if they did believe it, where would it be? It is stated several times within the dialogue that the story is true. I mean, there is that. Parts about the impassable sea and the true continent on the other side of Atlantis tend to indicate a more detailed knowledge than a, a normal fictional story. If you think Plato was telling the truth in Timius and uh, uh, with Timius and Critias, then Atlantis is located somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. One of the more likely places would be around the Azores Islands. The Azores is a group of islands belonging to Portugal, located about 900 miles west of the Portuguese coast. Some people believe these islands are the mountaintops of the sunken continent of Atlantis. On the other hand, if you feel Atlantis was an exaggeration of the historical destruction of Thera and the Minoan Empire, then it's found in the Aegean Sea. And again, there are some compelling similarities between the destruction of Santorini and the destruction of Atlantis. Okay. So, you know, Mediterranean, Atlantic, probably one of those places. Uh, but there actually is uh, other thoughts on where it could be. Again, like the guy said before, anywhere on the map, uh, you could basically talk about at some point someone has thought Atlantis was probably there. Uh, but when did people start looking for this real Atlantis? Well, for centuries after Plato's teaching, no one searched for Atlantis. It was widely accepted that Plato wasn't referring to a real place. And for hundreds of years, uh, there were also many other mysteries uh, that were definitely real to explore. So it wasn't a priority. You know, Europeans were busy exploring the South Pacific, Africa, Southeast Asia, the Americas. They were venturing to places that were definitely real, uh, unknown to Europeans, full of very real gold and jewels. I mean, just look at how the Spaniards looted the riches of the Aztecs and Incas. So again, it wasn't a priority to look for Atlantis at that time. And then Charles Etienne Brazier de Berberg showed up, he of the most obnoxiously long French name in the history of obnoxiously long French names. Fucking 19th century European assholes with their 17 fucking middle names. Ugh, the egos on these pieces of shit. I like 19th century Wild West names, by the way. Uh, like when dudes had like, you know, one simple syllable, you know, like Doc or Ike. Anyway, uh, Charlie, as I will now call him because I refuse to say his proper stupid name at length ever again. Uh, or, you know, what? let's go even simpler, Chuck. Chuck was a noted French writer, ethnographer, historian, archaeologist. Uh, he became a specialist in Mesoamerican uh, studies, uh, traveling extensively in that region, a region that covers present-day central Mexico to Costa Rica. And his recovery of historical documents contributed much, to, uh, uh, contributed much knowledge of the region's languages, writing history and culture, uh, particularly those of the Maya and Aztec civilizations. And he, and he also believed in a real Atlantis. And Chuck, or Big C, as I also sometimes like to call him now, uh, believed the Maya culture descended from the culture of Atlantis. He published a theory in 1862 which he expressed, uh, in which he expressed his belief that the lost land described by Plato did really exist and it had an advanced uh, civilization there before the beginning of the civilizations in Europe and Asia. He suggested that the origins of European and Persian world words could be traced to indigenous languages of the Americas, and that the ancient cultures of the New and the Old World had been in constant communication with one another at one time. He published a book in 1866 called Monuments of Ancient Mexico with illustrations of Maya ruins, illustrations uh, of what the ruins may have looked like originally, illustrations that also went a little overboard as far as exaggerating certain architectural uh, features to make the ancient Maya ruins look very similar to ancient Greek and Roman ruins, and this captivated the public's imagination. 
In another book published in 1868, Chuck made extensive parallels between Maya and Egyptian pantheons and cosmologies, implying that they had all had a common source and that the common source was Atlantis. He even speculated further about a history of the real Atlantis based on his interpretation of Maya ruins. And for the most part, uh, not too many people cared about Chuck's thoughts on Atlantis. Not too many, like, uh, intellectuals. Again, he captured kind of like the public imagination, but few scholars on the whole uh, bought his theory, and very few people were influenced by it. Until uh, Ignatius Donnelly, an American who, who liked Chuck's theories a whole bunch. One of the most important, if not the most important figure in the history of Atlantis research is American Ignatius Donnelly, born in 1831, lived in 1901, and he was author of Atlantis... The Antediluvian World, published in 1882, and without him, we probably wouldn't even be doing this episode. Uh, Donnelly studied Chuck's teachings extensively in the research of other lesser-known Atlantis believers of the 19th century, such as Augustus uh, Le Plongeon, a French-American author and amateur archaeologist who believed that the Maya and Egyptian civilizations also sprouted forth from the Atlantis civilization. Donnelly proposed that prior to the Great Flood, Atlantis uh, was a paradise of mankind, the Christian and Jewish Garden of Eden, and the Greek and Roman Elysian fields. He stated that Atlantis, the cradle of all civilizations, had established its first colony in Egypt, and that few people who escaped the catastrophic flood carried news of the disaster to all parts of the earth. This news became the basis of the flood uh, mythology in various religions and cultures, uh, and although widely read and believed at first, Donnelly's theories as well as the tale of Atlantis gradually were dismissed by the scientific community of his day. Uh, a popular nickname for Ignatius during his own lifetime was the Prince of Cranks. So, you know, that kind of shows how, how respected he was. Uh, he also wrote books about the biblical flood being brought on by a giant comet colliding with Earth and about how Sir Francis Bacon actually wrote all of Shakespeare's plays. He also, shortly before he died, wrote a pamphlet about a race of wooden puppets uh, living in Pennsylvania who were the true ancestors of the Amish people. He felt that their dedication to a simple way of living came naturally to them due to their wooden uh, puppet origins. All right, the puppet shit is nonsense, but the rest of that actually is true. Uh, one of Donnelly's Atlantis theories was looked into further in recent years, and that was the Great Flood Origin Theory. This is an interesting one to me. This is the uh, about the Black Sea, and this is a theory that presumes Atlantis itself was fictional, but the story of its demise was inspired by an actual historical event, the breaching of the Bosporus by the Mediterranean Sea and the subsequent flooding of the Black Sea around 5600 BCE. At that time, the Black Sea was a freshwater lake half its current size. Then rapid flooding inundated civilizations known to flourish along its banks with hundreds of feet of seawater uh, in a short period of time, perhaps less than a year. As inhabitants of the region scatter, they spread tales of the deluge, the deluge, uh, tales that may have led thousands of years later to Plato's account of Atlantis, tales that may also have led to the story of Noah and the biblical flood. Uh, this theory was even featured in the New York Times 1996, while it's agreed that the sequence of events described by the hypothesis occurred and that the Black Sea did expand its border around 5600 BCE, there is significant debate over the suddenness uh, of this flood and if it, in fact, did inspire all the flood mythology of various religions. Uh, there's also a theory, uh, on, uh, one not based on Donnelly's work, uh, that Atlantis was actually a much more temperate version of what is now Antarctica. This is based on the work of Charles Hapgood in his 1958 book, Earth's Shifting Crust. According to Hapgood, uh, around 12,000 years ago, the Earth's crust shifted, displacing the continent that became Antarctica from a location much further north than it is today. The more temperate continent was home to an advanced civilization, but the sudden shift to its current frigid location doomed the civilization's inhabitants, the Atlanteans, and their magnificent city was buried under layers of ice. Uh, Hapgood's theory uh, surfaced before the scientific world gained a full understanding of plate tectonics, uh, which largely relegated his shifting crust idea to the fringes of Atlantean beliefs. 
Uh, that's, that's pretty That's pretty unbelievable when you're at the fringe of Atlantean beliefs. Uh, this theory makes as about as much sense now as a NASA-guarded ice wall uh, surrounding a flat Earth. There's also the, the, the Bermuda Triangle theory, and this is another theory that was inspired by Donnelly's Atlantis speculation. Dude had no shortage of theories. And it was uh, this, this theory was that Atlantis was in the center of the Bermuda Triangle, a theory that many later writers expanded on and then added their own speculations as to where Atlantis may have been. Uh, one of these writers was Charles Berlitz, grandson of founder of the well-known language schools and author of many books on paranormal phenomena. In the 1970s, Berlitz claimed Atlantis was a real continent located off the Bahamas that had fallen victim to the notorious Bermuda Triangle. Uh, which will be a future time suck episode. I know many of you have written in about that. Uh, that's a region of the Atlantic where a number of ships have supposedly uh, disappeared under very mysterious circumstances and planes as well. Supporters of this theory point to the discovery of what looked like man-made walls and streets found off the coast of Bimini, although scientists have evacuated... Uh, evaluated these structures and found them to be natural beach rock formations. Uh, Charles Berlitz was also, uh, he also wrote a book I was fascinated with as a kid, A World of Strange Phenomena. Uh, per Berlitz also wrote Doomsday, 1999 AD, The Roswell Incident, The Mystery of Atlantis, Atlantis, The Lost Continent Revealed, Atlantis, The Eighth Continent, numerous other similarly titled works. Oddly enough, uh, none of Charles Berlitz's books have ever been used as either college or high school or even junior high or even homeschool textbooks. Then there's the work, this is the best. Then there's the work of Helena Petrovna uh, Blavatsky, a 19th century Russian occultist who co-founded the Theosophical Society in New York City in 1875. And holy shit, do Atlantis tales go completely off the fucking rails with her. Uh, theos, uh, the, theosophy, the, the, fucking goddammit, Theosophy, there we go, Theosophy holds that there is an ancient and secretive brotherhood of spiritual adepts known as the Masters, who, although found across the world, are centered in Tibet. These Masters are believed, these immortals, these Highlanders, are believed to have cultivated great wisdom and paranormal powers, and uh, Theosophists believe that it was they who initiated the modern Theosophical movement through decimating their teachings via Blavatsky. She's the chosen one. And all these masters, incidentally, are directly related to Steven Seagal. No, of course they're not. Blavatsky claimed she traveled extensively in the mid-19th century and that her travels brought her to Tibet, where she was given access to ancient manuscripts and had secret information, information she would share in books like The Secret Doctrine, published in 1888. Uh, and in this book, she writes about early races of humans that modern history doesn't know about or has chose to, hit, to hide, including a race of people living in a now-vanished continent that used to exist in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And she made up, I, I mean revealed, a lot about this race of people. During the long period of time when Atlantis was ruled by the Toltecs, the ancestors of the um, Amerindians, the early inhabitants of America, the civilization of Atlantis was at its height. This was the period between about a million and 900,000 years ago. It was called the Golden Age of Atlantis. And then, during this time, the Atlanteans had many luxuries and conveniences. Their capital city was called the City of the Golden Gates. At its height, it had 2 million inhabitants. There was extensive aqueducts leading uh, to the city from, the, from a mountain lake. The Atlanteans, they had airships powered by the Vril that could seat two to, two to eight people. Oh, I love how fucking specific all this nonsense is. Who are the Vril? Fair question. Uh, they are a superior subterranean master race uh, written about in 1871 by Edward Bulwer-Lytton in his novel, The Coming Race. Uh, who is Edward Bulwer-Lytton? Uh, he was an immensely popular British fiction writer, a fiction writer who wrote uh, a lot of best-selling books in the 19th century and who coined the phrase, the pen is mightier than the sword. 
I knew that phrase. I didn't know his name. Uh, he also wrote about the Vril in a science fiction novel. Yet some of his readers, uh, readers like Madame Blavatsky, uh, insisted he wasn't making everything up. He was sneaking in some truths. Uh, anyway, back to Cuckoo Town. Uh, I mean, uh, back to Madame Blavatsky's uh, very truthful Atlantis story. She said that uh, Atlantis's economic system was socialist, uh, much like that of the Incas. Atlanteans were the first to develop organized warfare. The military deployed Vril-powered air battleships that contained 50 to 100 fighting men. These air battleships deployed poison gas bombs. <laughs> the infantry, remember, this is like a million years ago. Uh, <laughs> the infantry fired fire-tipped arrows. The Toltecs of, uh, on Atlantis worshipped the sun in temples as grand as those of ancient Egypt that were decorated in bright colors. Uh, the Toltecs colonized all of North America and South America and thus became the people we now know as the Amer Amerindians. The downfall of Atlantis uh, started when some of the Toltecs began to practice black magic around 850,000 B.C. Because they, they, Why did they do that? Because they were corrupted by the dragon uh, Thephatat, <laughs> remembered as De Devadatta, the opponent of Buddha. What the fuck are she even talking about now? Wow. Throwing dragons in the mix. Well, why not? Why not? You're already talking about uh, airships and poison gas bombs existing on a fake continent a million years ago. Why not go full AD&D and throw in some black magic? Throw in some fucking dragons. Man, Madame Blavatsky must have been the best to talk to at parties. You know? Oh, and then what happened? No. Really? A dragon? Two dragons? Get out of town. Black magic? You don't say. Oh, I'm listening, Madame Bovlatsky. Am I ever listening? Okay, but back to her historically accurate downfall account of the downfall of Atlantis. So, you know, uh, after the, they started using black magic, the people began to become selfish and materialistic. You know, that's what happens when you start fucking, you know, using black magic. Everybody knows that. Uh, and soon thereafter, the, the Turanians, the, the, ancient, the ancestors of the people we know, we know now as the Turkic people, uh, they become dominant in much of Atlantis. You know, it's their time. It's their time to shine. And the Turanians, you know, they just fucking, they continue using black magic, you guys. And they, and they use it for hundreds of thousands of years. And it reaches its height in 250,000 BCE. And it continues until the final sinking of Atlantis. Uh, when they were opposed by white magicians, finally. Holy shit. So they're, so they're playing around black magic for 600,000 years. Look, I don't, I don't know a lot about black magic. But I do know that's a long time to be fucking around with it. Like, like that's a long time. And then the white magician showed up? Where were they for the previous 600,000 fucking years? I don't know. No, okay. Anyway, back to undisputedly accurate historical events. So then, the Master Moria incarnated as the Emperor of Atlantis in 220,000 BCE to oppose these black magicians. Because the, the white magicians, you know, fucking, they get him going. Now, the black magicians at this time, they weren't going down without a fight. And they used magical spells to breed human-animal chimeras to use as sex slaves. What the fuck? Chimeras? They bred fire-breathing she-monsters with lion's heads, goat bodies, and serpent's tails, and they helped create them with black magic? Wow. I guess that's what happens when you, when you dick around with black magic for too long. You end up making monster sex slaves. Well, they didn't just fuck these chimeras. They made them fight. And they didn't just have lion chimeras either. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Uh, they had an army composed of chimeras uh, that were composites uh, composed of a human body with the heads of fierce predators such as lions, tigers, and bears. Oh, my. Uh, that ate enemy corpses on the battlefield. I don't know why that detail was important for her to, to relate to her people. But they didn't just kill them. They, uh, they ate the corpses of the people they killed. 
And then the war between the white magicians and the black magicians continued until the end of Atlantis. And the masters of the ancient wisdom telepathically warned their disciples, the white magicians, to flee Atlantis in ships. Remember the masters she was talking about earlier, the, the Steven Seagal cousins or whatever. Uh, to flee Atlantis in ships while there was still time to get out before the final cataclysm. As noted, the final sudden submergence of Atlantis due to earthquakes occurred in 9,564 B.C. Exactly. And there you go. There you go, time suckers. A little bit of history your teachers were afraid to teach you. History only found in man, whence, how, and whither. A record of clairvoyant investigation. <laughs> a book published in 1913 by the second president of the Theosophical Society, uh, Adyar A. Besant, uh, and member uh, C.W. Leadbeater. Expanding on the teachings of the great Madame Blavatsky. What in the fuck? Okay. <laughs> So that's that's a while back. That's a while back. Uh, that's some 19th century nutjob thoughts. But are there any nutjobs out there that still believe in the lost state of Atlantis? Still look for it. Well, of course there are. Of course there are. You've been on the internet. Uh, there's Tony O'Connell, an Irish uh, pseudo-historian who runs the website Atlantopedia. An entire Wikipedia-like website devoted to facts regarding, <laughs> regarding Atlantis. Tony describes it thusly. Atlantopedia is aimed at providing the most comprehensive source of information regarding the development of Atlantis theories, particularly since Ignatius Donnelly produced his seminal work, his seminal work, on the subject towards the end of the 19th century. The content is intended to assist researchers, journalists, and anyone with an inquiring mind. Unlike many other sites on the internet, Atlantopedia will not be providing open forums. Of course, of course it won't be. This is because it's a bunch of nonsense, which I have seen so often devolve into time-wasting squabbles between ego-trippers or between lunatics is what I would say. Uh, however, we are open to all ideas and data that may improve the quality of the information offered. Uh, and, and we've offered an, invi an invite to, for, for emails from readers. It, it's actually not written like that. It doesn't, the way he wrote it doesn't make any fucking sense. My intention is that Atlantopedia be primarily concerned with the scientific search for Plato's Atlantis. Speculative theories or alleged psychic revelations without any supporting evidence are as worthless here as they would be in a court of law. He's only dealing with the serious shit, you guys. Atlantopedia encompasses a wide range of theories and their proponents to include, if I may badly paraphrase, the good, paraphrase, the good, the mad, and the unbelievable. All right. Well, so what qualifications does O'Connell have to run this, uh, run this site? Well, O'Connell does not have any education or degrees in archaeology, history, or the classics, the three subjects he spends most of his time writing about. He did previously work for a small electrical company. He was an electrician, and he's now retired, which, you know, gives him a lot of time to run the amazing Atlantopedia, uh, a site that even features an extensive bibliography of Atlantis-based terminology, such as Atlantophobia, which it defines as fear of the belief in the reality of Plato's Atlantis. Like other phobias, it can manifest itself in different forms, ranging from low-level sneering to downright ad hominem tirades on the Internet. One extreme case led to a sufferer physically attacking anyone named Donnelly. Well, you know, at least he has a sense of humor about his sight. I felt like he was talking about me there, by the way. With the, I, mean, I guess I, ha I do have Atlantophobia. I'm curious as to the internet tirades Donnelly is referring to. Let's find out what people are saying about Atlantis on the web uh, in what is I, I, my favorite uh, idiots of the internet so far. Idiots of the internet. Okay, guys, this is my favorite part of this episode. If you're bored at work, or you need a good laugh, or you just want to feel intellectually superior to someone, please do yourself a favor. Go to YouTube and search for Lost City of Atlantis is Real. Holy motherfuck. The Pandora's box of crazy you will open is 
deliciously incredible. So much lunacy under Atlantis videos. And, and I don't know what's crazier, the comments or the videos themselves. The information presented is off the fucking charts crazy. I'm talking flat earth is definitely real. NASA ice guards are for sure patrolling the perimeter right now and being assisted by space lizards who control every thought and move from their moon base uh, <laughs> moon base in the sky. It's, it's that level of preposterous delusion. So let's get into it. The following is an exchange from six months ago in the comment section of a video called Most Amazing Cities Found Underwater, which of course includes the Lost City of Atlantis, presented by the YouTube channel Origins Explained. Now, the narrator talks about having photos and videos of amazing underwater cities that traditional historians just aren't talking about. It's, it's too much, you guys. And this video is mostly just a slideshow, uh, and it's the greatest, because it uses obviously stock photo images of, like, scientists, like some model pretending to be a scientist in a very generic scientist outfit looking through, like, a microscope that has nothing to do with what's being spoke with uh, spoke about in the video. And, and they've mixed in, like, uh, uh, obvious drawings presented as photos of giant pyramids under underwater. Like, like obviously fake shit. At one point, they talk about finding ancient pottery and beads uh, underwater. And then they splice in, uh, again, another stock photo of, like, some cheap plastic beads you'd find at, like, a flea market. Stuff that you would get your kid to make, like, in a necklace-making kit. <laughs> it, it is the best. And so many people watch this video and think it's real. I mean, it, it couldn't be more obviously fake. I could make, I could make it like in an hour. I could, and I'm not that good at video editing. And and to me, it would be like, here's the fucking the dumbest shit ever. It's like like a like Adult Swim making fun of public access. You know that that level of nonsense. But then in the comments, there's a lot of people like, ah, fucking legit, man, legit. And I guess I guess so many people believe it because apparently a large portion of the world's population is just so emotionally desperate to need this type of shit to be real. To, to give some kind of meaning that they feel like they need to their, their lives, that they'll just believe anything. Now, by the way, if you're one of those desperate for any kind of meaning people, I'm so glad to have you on board. Uh, no one will spread the message of the suck more than you. Your dedication to whatever you choose to believe is inspiring. Okay, so under, under this video, six months ago, user Tefan Ka says, If there are so many reasons that the chronological table needs to be revised, then they are not doing so and purposely trying to cover up these things and deny any of them to be real despite the physical evidence and continue to teach students lies and force the students to believe the lies and mark the students wrong when they speak out against the lies? I don't know how that's a question, but it ends in a question mark. To which, but it is a question, and William Gary a month ago answered it. He says, suppression of information, my man. Those lifelong historians wouldn't want their, to risk their credibility uh, by having to rewrite all of their work, would they? What you described is absolutely what they are doing. It's a real problem. Okay. This, this exchange is in reference to the video claiming that new, previously unknown advanced civilizations such as Atlantis have been discovered. For sure. Much older than what we previously thought were the earliest advanced civilizations of Mesopotamia. And William Gary, he of two first names, possibly a relative of Ricky Randy and Rodney Bobby, uh, thinks that historians uh, – uh, or doesn't think that historians rewrite history. Even though they do that all the fucking time. Historians love new exciting history to come to light. But, but they think, no, no, they got to they gotta hide it to, to keep their credibility intact. So for, so for what? For what agenda? So they can keep selling their old <laughs> history books? They would love to write new books. They need more shit to sell. It's not like old history books are just flying off the fucking shelves, just being downloaded at record rates, making all that sweet history book money, living in their history, history book mansions. Fucking half-wit. Uh, they would also have way more to gain with new information, right? They would just have new stuff to write, new papers to publish, new courses to teach. Okay. But later under that same video, 
Power of Love Tarot Medium Reading says, finally, people are starting to wake up. The city, <laughs> the city near Cuba is Atlantis itself. It is written in ancient sacred texts of Vedas, as well as the reason why they went underwater, as well as spaceships and all events of Midgard Earth. But if I read one more comment from religious brainwashed zombies and their, quote, God, I will just throw up. Uh-uh, power of love tarot, medium reading. You don't get to make fun of religion when your username references tarot cards in a non-ironic way. I'm going to make a, I'm gonna make a rare stand, defend my religious listeners. If you've listened to multiple episodes of this podcast, you know that I'm not religious, you know? And then that I'm not uh, necessarily a big fan of organized religion in general. But I do have, uh, I do have way more respect for religion than I do for fucking tarot card reading. Oh, man, I just, I hate New Agey shit so much. When someone st starts talking to me about, like, tarot cards in, like, a serious way or astrology or any of that weird New Agey crystal shit, uh, <laughs> I, I just want to walk away and never talk to them again. Just get the fuck out of here. Midgard Earth, S spaceships, and you're making fun of religion. I love it when someone who believes in one thing there is no scientific proof for at all or empirical evidence of or any legitimate documentation of any kind uh, for argues with someone else who believes a different thing that no one can prove as well. Yeah, you know? just like, ha, you, you believe in Sasquatch, you fucking jackass. Oh my God. I was just telepathically communicating with some of my alien buddies on Mars about this exact type of silly shit 200 years ago, i.e. last night when I astral projected to another dimension where time isn't relative. And Zathan told me that there can't be Sasquatches. They can't be real because they don't share the same source DNA as centaurs. <laughs> but you know what? Keep believing in those silly, obviously not real hominids if that's what you need to do. Just, you know, keep ignoring the truth, brother. Refuse to do some basic clairvoyant fucking investigation. <sighs> well, further down the thread, things take a turn for the good in a weird way where skeptic and fundamentalist uh, form a little truce. Check this out. Uh, eight months ago, user Arizona person critiques the video saying, your dates are wrong. The earth was created 6,000 years ago, just like the Bible tells us. To which Bonkers Crayon 60 replies, LOL, bitch, you're joking. The earth was made billions of years ago. I don't care what you believe in, but I don't believe in that one God shit. Evolution is true. The facts are true, not the fucking Bible. Believe what you believe, kid, but just saying those things, the Bible or whatever it, it's called, ain't true. It's so hard to read these things. This, you have to like, like, what exactly are they saying with those fucking crazy grammar? Well, Arizona person does not care for this derogatory reply. And comes back with ass wipe. No, I, no, I am not joking. It was created six thousand years ago, just like the Bible teaches. You are hellbound, Bible denying fool. Well, bonkers. Crayon sixty doesn't like being told he's going to hell. Few people do. Few people do. He comes back with a lot of capital letters, almost everything in caps, and a lot of exclamation points, like so many. He says, "Boy, I don't care what you believe. I'm discussing the facts. Humans are older than six thousand years. The Earth is billions of years old. Fucking God." Like, damn, chill. Well, Arizona person ain't about to chill. There is exactly zero chill in Arizona person who retorts with all caps. Wrong. Just because you are indoctrinated with lies and bullshit doesn't make it true. Your extremely low IQ is showing. And for some reason, this calms bonkers crayon 60 down. And a rare, sincere YouTube apology is given. Bonkers crayon 60 says, look, Arizona person. I'm extremely sorry that I offended you and your beliefs in that level. Every human being believes in something, and that something may be different from another's beliefs. I'm apologizing, and I hope you can accept it. I believe in evolution, and you believe in what the Bible discusses to you. I think that's completely fine. 
and that we should and that we should not fight over this. Can you accept my apology? I love how it gets so sincere all of a sudden. Not only does Arizona person accept Bonkers Crayon, Bonkers Crayon 60's apology, they issue one of their own. It's a YouTube miracle. Yes, I as well am sorry. I just love all of God's creations and want to see people going to heaven is all. Good day. No, no caps. No exclamation points. To which Bonkers Crayon 60 ends the exchange with a polite little good day to you too. No caps. That was sweet. I like that. But I like this idiotic nonsense I'm about to share with you even more. Under a video titled National Geographic Documentary 2015, The Lost World of Atlantis, Full Documentary HD, we have some geniuses sharing their knowledge with the world. A month ago, user Melba Hank lets us all know we are wasting our time looking for Atlantis. Not because it's not real. No, sir. That would be reasonable. No, because we're just not ready to see it. He says, ladies and gentlemen, none of you will find, will find Atlantis when the time is right. The right people will, will reincarnate and they are ones that will find Atlantis. It is not about title. It is about the benefit of humanities. Atlantis is on our fingertips, but because of our ego, we lost sight. Atlantis was not in Europe. It was in the Atlantic Ocean. And please stop telling lies. Plato was not the only one that knew the tales of Atlantis. All you need to do is talk to Native American. As if it's one person. The race of Atlantis was the red race that is now almost extinction. But they will return and they will be the ones to find Atlantis. You are wasting your time and you are giving false information. Please, if you're Native American time sucker, please, <laughs> please address this. Please send me an email. I love how he just, he acts like, yeah, just talk to any Native American. And they'll be like, no, nah, we fucking, we've known about Atlantis for years, bro. We tell, yeah, that's common knowledge. And I love that he opens with ladies and gentlemen. Really adds like an official scholarly air to the whole thing. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, I have some fine news to share with you. We will not find Atlantis at the bottom of the sea. That is lunacy. No, we will find it when the red race of Native Americans reincarnate when the time is right to reveal themselves in the lost city. That is all. Good day. Carry on and so forth. Well, user Alan Martin also doesn't buy this video's explanation. No, he instead uh, directs us to the real truth. He directs us to another even crazier Atlantis video saying two weeks ago, Atlantis was a global civilization that sank 12,900 years ago. There is geological evidence to support these, to support this. See Randall Carlson and Graham Hancock. They know their stuff on this subject, and if you wish to hear what happened during the cataclysm, I refer you to Courtney Brown and the Farsight Institute that they have remote viewed it. Atlantis was discovered by remote viewing. Holy shit, we've reached even another level of insanity. This is so good. It just keeps getting better. Remote viewing, by the way, is the practice of seeking impressions about a distant or unseen target, purportedly using extrasensory perception, ESP, or sensing with the mind. It's never been scientifically proven to work ever. Don't think for a second that means I won't do a future time stuck on it, though. I fucking love this weird shit. Well, I bid on Alan's recommendation. I watched some of the video, Atlantis, the true story, remote viewing Atlantis, Courtney Brown, shared by the YouTube channel Cosmic Continuum. It's narrated by Randy Moggins from Off Planet Radio, who seems exactly as casually insane as you would expect. Uh, Off Planet Radio defines itself as, Welcome to the new reality adventure of the mind, the paranormal, black science, deep politics, metaphysics, spiritually, dot, dot, or spirituality, dot, 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 and beyond. Fuck me. And here's the first awesome exchange I came to under this video. A year ago, user Chuck Hydro has a question about some of the video's claims regarding the entire Earth being populated by the people of Atlantis. <laughs> he says, so there was one race, and from that race, all the races evolved? 
it would be interesting for him to explain as to how the one race was able to develop all the distinct racial features, uh, i.e. since genetic features simply cannot be added to the genetic code. If there is such an, if there is such an ability, I would love to have an example. Well, finally, one week ago, this question was definitively answered. User Catherine DiCarlo explains Chuck, or I'm sorry, Chuck Hydro, Chuck Hydro. That is easy. They came, they gathered, they experimented, they created, they brought back, they noticed Earth had created her own, they taught. They, they had to segregate due to changes in DNA, latent abilities, created the Guardian clan, taught them control of abilities, then left. Now they are back. And with the return, an awakening is happening. There were many outposts. The main landmass was Atlantica and the Atlantic. The people were children of Atlas. Atlas is a triple star system in the Pleiades. Although all humans have the blood, not all have the abilities. Well, fucking do you get it now, Chuck Hydro? It's simple. The Guardian clan taught them control abilities. An awakening is happening. They're children of Atlas. And now there's a triple star system. Wake the fuck up. Pay attention, Chuck Hydro. I just love that these are real people. There's a, can you imagine having to talk to Catherine DiCarlo, how fucking maddening that would be about anything? You know that her wackadoodle beliefs aren't limited to, to this Atlantis. She, and you know that she, she replied, like, you know she's an arguer. You'd be like, ah, oh, yeah, man, no, it's, it's nice. It's warm here. Well, of course it's warm here. It's warm here because the fire dragons made it warm. You're like, ah, I don't think so. That doesn't make any sense. Well, actually, the awakening of the fire dragons, like, she'd be in fucking tolerable. This video uh, brought up a recommendation for another great Atlantis video called the Yucatan Hall of Records, the Atlantis Connection, uploaded by UFO TV, the Disclosure Network. Well, you had me at UFO TV. I had to check. Uh, user, the Bite Knight, wondered how, if Atlantis possessed beings who are incredibly technologically advanced, as the video claims, why did archaeologists supposedly find their achievements recorded onto stone tablets? Fair question. A year ago, he asked, how sophisticated could the Atlanteans have been if their records are on stone tablets? Sounds like something pre-industrial people would do. And four months ago, he got his answer. All right, because Rallotef, in sorceries, busted out some knowledge on his ass. He said, what do we use today if we want an important record to likely last a long passage of time? Centuries to millennia. Certainly not computers. Well, there you go, Bite Night. Hard drives don't last as long. And, you know, and they clearly knew their civilization would disappear, so they chose to chisel shit into stone with the rudimentary language, even though they had computers. Case closed. Next question. At this point, another recommended video caught my eye. One that brought me back to remote viewing. This is from a video called Atlantis, The True Story, revised 2016 version, posted by Farsight Press. User Mike Waugh calls out people for making fun of what they just don't understand. I felt like he was speaking directly to me. Even though he left this video uh, eight months ago, he said, I don't understand remote viewing, so it must be bullshit. Therefore, I will make the de definite statement without any further research that this entire video is full of shit, says the naysayers without any further truth seeking. Please, LOL. <laughs> Educate yourselves. There's far more information supporting this area of research than some fool on a computer chair saying nope while folding their arms getting Dorito dust all over the place. Well, first off, Mike. Doritos are goddamn delicious, and I'm not eating them right now. I did have some last night, for real. I had some nacho cheese Doritos because they're the fucking best. What, what do they mix into that cheese powder? Crack? I can't fucking stop once I start. Well, Mike receives only encouragement from the other fine, upstanding morons in this thread. Uh, user, your tub, immediately show their support, saying, Just ignore them. A fixed mind is fixed, and you will waste energy trying to change a closed mind. Those kind of people need a big emotional shock to wake them up. 
with authority figures and mainstream media reporting truth instead of lying about everything. Don't let people like me get you down, Mike. I'm just part of some agenda I've yet to be told about. It's all a conspiracy to, compete, to, com, to, to keep you from the truth. I know that I personally only crawl out of my underground space lizard lair to record this podcast and do occasional stand-up shows. That's it. Think we can't get any crazier? Oh, you're wrong. This video uh, led me to the one we're going to end on today. It's called Ancient Hidden Knowledge, The Legend of Atlantis, Earth Human History, posted by User World Peace, and it's nearly six hours long. Five hours, 42 minutes and 58 seconds of gibberish. I didn't watch the whole thing because no one had a gun to my head, but listen to how it starts. Aeons ago, brothers from outer space, under the spiritual guidance of the masters of wisdom, the creators of the universe, came to Earth and settled in the core of the planet. Mm -hmm. Their task was to prepare the surface of the planet for the development of higher forms of biological life ah. and for the reincarnation of souls destroyed in the atomic explosion which had shattered the planet Malona, Lucifer, located between Jupiter and Mars. Oh, I, I forgot about that atomic explosion. Wow. Now, this is what you're putting in the opening minute. I had to skip ahead to find out how much crazier it would become. Let's see what's happening about two hours in. The souls, on the other hand, worked in such a way that they needed many individual experiences. However, they could not identify themselves with these experiences. Therefore, they created a vessel, which we call the physical body, so that they could gather experiences by reincarnating from one life to the next in the world of opposites mm -hmm. and slowly become perfect. That's how they became perfect because of the, the thing he was saying. <laughs> Fuck me. Let's skip ahead to four hours in. They um, called the present version of the um, human species modern man, saying that um, basically we spring from an experiment that began about a half a million years ago. Mm -hmm. And that the gods um, that created us are extraterrestrial beings yeah. who uh, in reality have forgot their own gods. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And these extraterrestrial beings are going through their own process of change at this time. Mm -hmm. And because they created us, because we're a part of how they learn, right. we're involved and they're involved in this time of coming together. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. That now makes what sense. What the Pleiadians have taught me is that this coming together, this collapsing of time this merging of consciousness that's taking place between all mm. species on oh. the earth plane has to do with something that is going to create um let me mm. see how i can put it how, how a could new you put geometric it? um thought form a new geometry of being oh a new geometry of being um let me see how can i put this um this is all horseshit this is all complete and total pseudoscience new age gibberish Tales spun by people with a desire to feel important so strong, a desire for the world to be so much more than it appears to be, that they'll try and sell complete and utter nonsense with a straight face to the rest of the world and also to themselves. But how does it end? How does this marathon masterpiece of nonsensical drivel end? Which glorifies and which sees him in everything. This is the bridge. I would say in the dimension of light, in a new world or in a new house of the Father. This is the only possible way we must develop beyond ourselves. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. Well, there you go. 
they fucking, yeah, the truth now. Do with that what you will. Hit up Mike Waugh in your tub. Talk to them about it. See what people are... <laughs> so what are people saying about this revelation? User Heavens44 said, Did you know that everything presented in this video is actually the secret knowledge of secret societies? It's from groups like Freemason and Rosicrucians. Interestingly enough, people would have been punished in the past had they made public all this information. Yet they seem to spread it into the public deliberately all this at this time. Not only that, but they emphasize and are quite convinced that all of their knowledge stems from the ancient civilizations with a thin thread of passage from ancient Babylon and ancient Egypt. P.S. I have affirmation from all their symbols presented clearly and constantly in this video. Bold claim, Heavens44. Sure, you have proof from all the symbols, but you didn't post this video, did you? No, user World Peace did. And I think it's up to her to let us know if this video is in fact full of Illuminati truths. Well, World Peace wastes no time getting back to Heavens44 saying yes. This is the occult information. The Illuminati have to share information, but it's up to the people to find or use it. Well, there you go. Turns out Heaven's 44 symbol reading was entirely accurate. Or is it? Jennifer Parker isn't buying it because she is woke as fuck, son. She quickly posts, this is Luciferian propaganda. It takes bits and pieces of truth and wraps it into lies. Just because the Masonic orders or the Rosicrucians believed it doesn't make it so. Satan is the most cunning liar there has ever been. Bam, fucking told you, knew it. I had a hunch all along this was the work of Satan. Thanks, Jenny. Or do you prefer Jen? Well, World Peace gets right back to Jen. Another poster may have been offended by her satanic accusations, but not World Peace. She's above that. She's too peaceful for that shit. She calmly types, Lucifer is loved by God just as you are. The truth is truth. I'll tell you, the Bible is not all true as well. We got to go with what resonates with us. Well, Jennifer doesn't necessarily agree with World Peace's take on the Bible, but she does respect the sentiment, immediately replying with, not sure if I agree with what you say about God loving Satan, but yes, we do have to go with what resonates. Go with what resonates, everybody. That's it. That's how you live your life. Just go with what resonates. Fuck science. Forget critical thinking. Forget empirical evidence. Forget rigorous academic experiments, surveys. Forget formal education. Just go with, you know, what resonates. And going with what resonates is a surefire way to end up as one of the idiots of the internet. Idiots of the internet. internet. So what do I think about Atlantis after all this? Well, I sure as shit don't think there was an ancient land of chimera fuckers flying around in ancient spaceships and having magic wars. <laughs> but I do love that other people believe that. How boring would the world be without all these ideas floating around? It's wonderfully entertaining. Uh, I'd love to be a fly on the wall listening to Madame Vlatsky talking to the other members of the, the Theosophical Society in New York in 1880 and saying the craziest shit as if it makes total sense. How would that awesome would that be to actually been there when she's talking about this with people? So when the Toltecs began using black magic to tame dragons, uh, Madame Vlatsky, is that, is that, when did that happen exactly? Uh, 850,000 years ago, Edgar. Uh, could you pass me the sugar for my tea, my dear? But of course, madam, uh, what a pity they had to begin dabbling in the dark arts. Think of how far civilization would be today if they hadn't fallen into chimera fornication. True. So true, Edgar. One must never deal in black magic. I myself thought about that in my trips to Tibet. Really, madam? Of course. I thought about dabbling myself, even learned a few spells, teleported, astral projected, saw the future with my third eye, watched the ancient virils in their underground cities, but I decided against continuing to use it. Could you, could you hand me the orange marmalade? Oh, you decided against it after all that? But why? The marmalade, Edgar. Could you, could you please pass it? Oh, uh, yes, of, of course, madam. Uh, would you like me to spread it on your toast? Uh, no, Edgar. I'm, I'm perfectly capable of spreading my own marmalade. But thank you. You're, you're a gentleman. Uh, thank you, madam. Uh, the dark arts. Uh, why didn't you indulge further? 
Honestly, Edgar, I'm just not fond of dragons. You know, they smell dreadful. Ah, yes, of course, madam. The dreadful smell. I hadn't thought of that, but I guess that's why I'm not head of the Theosophical Society. Are you done with that marmalade? Fucking nuts. God, these people crack me up. How funny is it that one fictional story written over 2,000 years ago, uh, you know, has led to a mythology that turns, uh, that's turned into expeditions to find a new uh, lost island, movies, songs, a Bojangles origin narrative, and so much more today. Makes me wonder what some of these ancient guys would think if they were able to visit our time. You know, just a whole bunch of just, what the fuck? That's not what I meant at all. I made it up. Man, you people have some seriously active imaginations. Anyway, I hope you had fun with this suck. I know it was kind of all over the place, uh, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, and, I, and I hope people continue to believe in shit like this. I really do. It gives me the best stories to suck on. Now let's suck on Atlantis just a little bit more before we get out of here with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Plato taught philosophy through a device now known as the method of Socratic dialogue. A discussion of moral and philosophical problems between two or more characters in a dialogue is an illustration of one version of the Socratic method. The dialogues are either dramatic or narrative, and Socrates is often the main participant. And the conversations these characters have are some of the earliest works of fiction we know to exist. Fiction, fictional parables told to illustrate a real moral truth. And the story of Atlantis can be traced back to one of these fictional dialogues. And for the record, uh, in that dialogue, Plato didn't say shit about dragons or chimera fucking. Number two, ocean explorer Robert Ballard, the National Geographic explorer in residence who discovered the wreck of the Titanic in 1985, notes that no Nobel laureates have said that what Plato wrote about Atlantis is true. Ignatius Donnelly, author of Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, the novel that sparked most modern interest in a lost city, was not a Nobel laureate. He was a dude who also wrote in uh, Ragnarok in 1883, a book in which Donnelly argues that an enormous comet hit the Earth 12,000 years ago, resulting in widespread fires, floods, poisonous gases, and unusually vicious and prolonged winters. The catastrophe destroyed another highly advanced civilization, forcing its terrified population to seek shelter in caves, and as cave dwellers, they lost knowledge of art, literature, music, philosophy, and engineering. Wow. Dude had such a hard-on for ancient, highly advanced civilizations getting destroyed in mysterious ways. Number three, digging for Atlantis, I did come across research that the Black Sea did significantly expand its border around 5600 BCE, which may have led directly to the Great Flood mythology featured in numerous major religions that still exist today. Most interesting knowledge I've come across uh, in a little bit. I, I really like that. Uh, every story has an origin. Uh, Tony O'Connell is an Irish pseudo-historian who runs the website Atlantopedia. O'Connell also does not have any education or degrees in archaeology, history, or classics, the three subjects he usually writes about. And you might think, but Dan, you, have, you talk a lot about history, and you don't have a degree in history, all right? Well, you know what? That's actually not entirely true. I don't have a degree in history, but uh, I, I don't also just kind of make this stuff up. I relay information written by real historians and try to slip some comedy into that. Big difference. I'm no genius. I'm just smart enough to know my place. I'm not throwing out facts I came up with. Uh, I try to discern which facts uh, others came up with to seem which uh, are the best. I did take a critical thinking class and did take college history, psychology, sociology, and English courses where you're taught, you know, how to study studies and how to interpret historical information. Uh, and number five, some new info, uh, that tiny island district of Bimini uh, in the westernmost part of the Bahamas, not only has this uh, Bimini Road, a series of submerged structures that some believe to be a link to the lost city of Atlantis, uh, those numerous large limestone blocks that seem to appear to be man-made, uh, forming a road that leads out to sea. It's also uh, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., our last time suck, wrote some of his speeches. He was a big fan of Bimini and traveled there numerous times. 
and, and, and wrote, again, some of his most famous speeches floating atop its pristine waters. And by the way, on that road, geologists believe, uh, again, that they are not man-made, uh, that these, these big stones are natural formations of beach rocks. Uh, however, the sci-fi and history channel beg to differ. And the road has been featured on ancient aliens as obvious proof of Atlantis. So this very road could have easily been carved by ancient black wizard folk, black magic wizard folk, or black magic, black wizard folk. I don't know why they have to be white, white and black magicians. Why not? Uh, uh, God knows how many chimeras were fucked on that very road. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Well, thank you, Time Suckers, for listening again today. Thanks for telling your friends and for giving me hope that I might actually be able to turn this little project that I now love so much into a real job. Uh, one of you Time Suckers recently took sharing the suck to a new level. Uh, Alicia Lubin is a Time Sucker and also the brand manager of Maxline Brewing in Fort Collins, Colorado. And if you live in or near Fort Collins and you love Time Suck, I urge you to go meet other Time Suckers at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, July 18th for an evening of trivia and fine crafted brews in the first ever Time Suck trivia night. That's right. It's, it's trivia all about Time Suck. Teams consist of one to five players. Time Suck trivia begins at 7 p.m., so please arrive early to grab a brew seat and your trivia materials seating is first come first served uh alicia and the gang at maxline brewing will be giving away a signed copy of don't wake the bear that album a signed uh, daddy bear book as well as uh time suck t-shirts brewery gear and beverages and it's located at 2724 mcclellan drive fort collins colorado go to maxlinebrewing.com for more details some of the topics covered in the trivia night will be bonnie and clyde jeffrey dahmer pablo escobar jfk al capone and more all trivia from episodes of Time Suck. I love this so much. You know, and if you want to run a Time Suck trivia night of your own uh, in your town, hit me up at admin at timesuckpodcast.com for discounted Time Suck merch that you can give away to the winners. I would love this to happen a whole bunch more. What a great way to have a fun night and meet other Time Suckers. Form new friendships, learn new shit with people who share your sense of humor and curiosity about the world. So fucking cool. Uh, also, if you haven't already, you can watch my latest special, Don't Wake the Bear, on Amazon, where it's on Amazon, where it streams for free for Prime members. Uh, please check it out and rate it if you'd be so kind. And uh, follow the suck on social media at Time Suck Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, backslash or slash Time Suck Podcast on Facebook. And this Friday, Vlad the Impaler, the seventh bonus episode, the 15th century inspiration for Bram Stoker's 19th century Dracula, which led directly or indirectly to all the Dracula tales told since. And after reading about Vlad Dracula for weeks, the real dude was scarier than the monster. The dude did a lot more than impale people on poles, and he did a shitload of that. Impaled enemy soldiers, impaled his own soldiers, criminals, people he didn't like, women, children, impaled babies. He cut off genitals, made people eat human flesh, boiled groups of people to death, and so on. Uh, he was also an extremely well-educated person, a talented politician, and a brilliant military commander. Complicated dude. And this Friday, he gets sucked. The suck gets medieval on your ass. Until then, have a great week. Put that Time Suck Trivia Night at Maxline Brewing in your calendar. If you live in or near Fort Collins, Colorado, check out Andu Invade's dope artwork that's on sale all month at his Etsy.com slash shop slash Vade store. Figure out exactly where you stand on the great pussy debate and keep on sucking. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.